Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The centre of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulina those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, whatever time of the day or night it is, Project Kashmir's listener, anywhere in the world. Um, today on the show, we've got Paddy Ney, who I believe is in Warsaw. Is that correct, Paddy? He is. I am. <laughs> okay, and I, I'm, I'm recording this in Krakow in Poland. The year is 2018 on a planet that's currently called Earth. Um, so <laughs> if you're listening in the distant, dim and distant future on a different planet, <laughs> this is from where um, this originates. So, um, Paddy, very, very nice to have you, have you on, the, on the show. And could you, rather than me, try to introduce... Um, introduce you why don't you kick off in the way most of our guests kick off answering the question what do you do as if it was a fairly informal informal conversation in a bar as opposed to a job interview there's <laughs> <laughs> the, the worst answer you can ever give to that question at parties to say oh, i'm a lawyer or i'm an accountant and then the other person goes mm. <laughs> very interesting and then immediately changes the subject. So uh, what do I do? Well, that is a good question. I suppose in a nutshell, in a, in a pickle, as they say in Polish, um, I am a, a filmmaker and I produce films that I hope uh, help Polish people to reimagine and re-understand the country they live in uh, and the future they can have for themselves. Um, and I produce films that help other people look at the country of Poland in a different way. Um, so my work ranges from comedy to <laughs> extremely sad stuff. Uh, I seem to like veer from from uh, uh, hilarity to to misery, <laughs> with uh, like, like a little uh, TikTok. And um, I also specialise in digital marketing, so I'm a, a passionate fan of marketing, very interested in the subject. Um, but it always comes back to essentially uh, communication. So I've I've written, I've sung. I wrote poetry, very bad stuff. I won't recite any for you now. Um, sung in a band, um, vlogged, vlogged for, for work, B2B, B2C. But the passion of my life right now really is um, creating short-form films, and I want to move into long-form films in, in a way that is going to just advance our global consciousness or even just our local consciousness just a tad further before I shuffle off this, this tiny little planet that we're currently occupying. Okay, well, um, and to give a bit of context, you don't, I mean, I, I watched uh, some of your Polish language content and I'm impressed by the level um, at which you're, you're, you've got a Polish language uh, video vlog and 
Um, how did you? And so maybe, how old are you? What's your family situation? How did you? Like, I, this isn't a pickup line in a bar. How come you've got a child? What, what, what's um, what's your background? How did you end up in Poland? Uh, are you, have you got a Polish connection, Polish roots, or you don't sound Polish when you're speaking English? <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, we just had a small connection cut there. So uh, if I didn't catch all of what you said, then apologies. Um, yeah, so uh, my story with Poland actually starts in Africa. Um, I was on Shaka Stephen Street in Freetown, Sierra Leone in 2007, and I unfortunately ate a falafel kebab, uh, which was unfortunate because the salad that was in the falafel kebab had been um, fertilized with human manure, to, to put it in. <laughs> yep. Uh, because they don't really have a huge amount of fertilizer. At the time, it was the world's poorest country, uh, poorer even than Afghanistan. And uh, I, I was rather sick from that experience, as you can imagine. And when I came back from Sierra Leone to the UK, instead of going to a pub, uh, so sorry, instead of going to a tropical disease hospital like I should have done, I went to the pub and tried to sort of self-medicate my, myself with a couple of pints of Guinness. And then I became hungry. So my friend and I went to a restaurant and I met a Polish girl. Uh, she was the waitress in the restaurant. I chatted her up. I got her number, despite the fact that I was actually quite seriously ill with a tropical disease at the time, which I still think is one of my top accomplishments. Uh, not easy to chat up a Polish girl when you're, a, when you're in a restaurant, but I managed it. Um, and I started to go out with her and started to come to um, Wrocław in the southwest uh, of the country. And I started to discover the story of this amazing place, you know, this country, which in fact is super close to the UK, where I'm actually from. Um, but I knew almost nothing about as somebody who was passionate about history and read, you know, hundreds of books about the subject. And, um, you know, I'd read any number of books about the Holocaust and the rest. It just hadn't really put in place in my mind that there was this rather large country with this rather impressive story uh, with this incredible people that that I knew very, very little about. You know, we have lots of generalizations from a British perspective of the French, the Germans, the Spanish. You know, you, you can say something about the, the cities, the people, the food, the culture. Can't say very much about Poland. And um, there's a reason for that, which is, of course, its story wasn't known uh, or, or, or was, uh, was prevented from being known for 45 years whilst Poland was under the Iron Curtain. So, um I suppose it was just the, exactly the right time in uh, in my life in the tw in my twenties when I was um, I didn't have any mortgages and had children uh, I had no real reason why I, I couldn't do it so I decided after three years of, of living with Joanna as my ex girlfriend uh, uh, that I would come over and live in Warsaw Poland and that was in 2010 and since then Warsaw is my home now being an immigrant is a, a difficult experience it teaches you an awful lot about who you are. You don't have any friends. You have no money, in my case anyway. Um, everything that you've learned and used up until the moment you come is basically totally useless. I mean, Poland did not need anyone with some government experience, which is what I've been working in. I didn't know a, a, really a word of Polish at all. Not the rapid fire street slang, everyday Polish that I needed to learn. And uh, it was a lonely, difficult, painful year adapting to this strange, weird country where people stare and the weather is gruesome for months. And, you know, there's this joyless lack of optimism and people are sort of suspicious of anyone who might be friendly. And, you know, there's no salmon in the local shop. <laughs> if you go, All of these things are the reverse in the UK. But I did discover uh, who I was. And without any connections or, or friends or anything like that, I, I rebuilt my life, I suppose you could say, uh, from the bottom up. Um, and I think I'm a better person for it. And I'm also immensely grateful for the opportunities that Poland has given me. It, I now can't imagine my life in the UK. 
I wouldn't want to go back as much as it pains my family to hear. Uh, and, I, and I think Poland's such a fantastic place to live in such an exciting country, such potential ahead of it. God, the story so far is amazing. So what's the story of Poland going to be like in the next quarter century? Well, I don't know one thing. I want to be a part of that story. Mm-hmm. So that's a very, very interesting and powerful, powerful story. And, you know, part of the, the, the primary, area, the, 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 the things this podcast is meant to be about uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, wide, widely drawn. And a lot of our listeners, to the extent that we know who our listeners are, by the way, listeners, I would love to hear who you are. Do leave a comment or or send me a message because we don't know much about our audience, in fact, um, is also a question of how to present you were interested in the entrepreneurial journey in the sense that I, I understand that you're a kind of freelancer you're a creative entrepreneur you're making your own content distributing it direct on the internet so but you could be like uh, perceived as a service provider obviously if someone's looking for someone who speaks uh english as well as as paddy does then he's a potential vendor for you I'm, i hope you might find a client or two by doing this if you don't <laughs> i won't be surprised but if you do that would be fantastic i'm sure you wouldn't complain if you had some <laughs> nice high-paying clients so you could be a service provider but in your background, I looked at your CV, you had quite sort of governmental type jobs in your past. So is it a surprise to you, if you think of where you were 10 before your Pol- before 2007 and your the beginnings of your Polish journey, is it a surprise to you that you're kind of self-employed, semi, I don't know whether you self, do you self-identify as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's a good question, actually, because whenever you do media interviews, they always say, you know, how do we describe you? <laughs> and, uh on any given day, I could say filmmaker, I could say vlogger, I could say uh, marketing manager, or I could say entrepreneur. I do have my own company, um, and I do different types of work. Um, so I am monetizing my channel right now. Uh, and dear listener, if you are interested in becoming an authority in your industry, in your sector, or the passion that you have, or purpose that you have in your life, it doesn't always have to be a passion. I hope that today in this interview, you might discover a few things that help you, uh, rather than just listening to Paddy prattle on about himself. Uh, and um, the work I'm doing to monetize, in the just to maybe put that into context, um, two years ago, despite having an interest in video, I had no real actual experience or, or skills. I started to vlog in Polish, um, and in the course of the last two years, I've had around about 26 million views of my content on my, on my channels. Um, as well as all sorts of redistributed and repurposed content. And um, over the course of those two years, I've discovered a real love for the medium of video. It's super powerful. Richard, you're doing this interview, not just in a podcast format, but also on Facebook Live uh, for a very good reason, because Facebook wants you to do that and will reward you for it. So there are many different forms of video. They're my passion. Uh, And right now I'm trying to specialize in short form video, uh, but I've got a real eye now on long form, long format video uh, in the future. So uh what am i I suppose yeah when you say you're a business person i suppose you are um have i built a business uh up from ground zero using nobody else's money all on my own and sold it off no not at that stage and i'm not sure i'll ever get there Uh, i think in reality i'm probably just a a lone wolf (laughs) uh, at this stage but i would never rule it out uh so Today, Richard, for you, I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> okay, that, that's that's fine by me. And if you go back to your, it's, the, it's also I'm interested in issues like upbringing, parenting, how people got to 
what, what their childhood was like to lead them to where they are now. So could you give us a few sort of bullet points about that? How, how, um, uh, uh, so. Sure. Um, I once had a mentor, a, a, a guy that uh, our dear listeners may remember called Sam Cook, uh, the previous uh, host of um, Project Kashmir's podcast or co-host, sorry. And uh, I remember writing the story of my uh, my necrologue. So my um, what was necrologue in English? Uh, God, I've just forgotten. I've forgotten the word. Obituary. Obituary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel rather ch- rather chuffed that I can correct you on your excellent poem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, actually, I couldn't remember it backwards from Polish back into English. You know, there's a there's, there's certain vocabulary that I now can't remember in English because of why would I need it? So necrologue. Like, like Zawatwicz. <laughs> Zawadvich, yeah, well, Kombinovac, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> for our Polish listeners, you'll, you'll have to understand this, but for, uh, for foreigners, it's hard to explain, but these, these verbs are just so Polish. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I wrote my obituary for Sam once, and in it, I described the fact that I had an idyllic childhood, and, and it really was. I grew up in the east of Anglia, a place called Ipswich, once voted the 27th most ugly city in um, the UK, so we couldn't even excel <laughs> in, in the worst categories. Uh, so it was a comfortable middle class background. Um, I think one of the primary drivers in my life has been my relationship with uh, actually a man that I didn't know. It was my, my grandfather who died when I was quite young. And he was a, a, a charming Irishman called uh, Charles McLeavy, born in um, New York, uh, spent most of his life in Egypt, technically not even English, uh, or certainly uh, a British subject, let's say, in the days when he could be a subject. Um, and my mother always described him to me as this charismatic, talkative, charming Irish guy. And I suppose for most of my life, I've probably been living somewhat in his shadow for, for whatever reason. That spurred me on to do the types of behaviours and things that I was told he used to do. So I'm a passionate reader, a uh, lover of history. Some Many of his books that, that he left behind him are, are still on my shelf today. Um, and I've always had this very strong interest in story, storytelling, um, Yes, the romance of war or certainly the the extremes of emotion that only war can bring out. Um, And if you're looking for tales of daring do and heroism and tragedy, betrayal, despair and the depths of misery and the best of the 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 best of the humanity that that we have in ourselves, then there is really no better place than Poland. So whilst I fell in love with the people and the cheap beer and the nice food (laughs) and the weird oddities of the country, the the fascinating story of what this country has been through and what its people have done to get through um, is something I'm in love with. Okay, that's not quite the what I, I mean. I, maybe I, I misasked the question. I was asking if you think back to what you were like when you were ten or fifteen. What did you think you were going to be? Oh, all right. Well, I was voted most likely to um, be in the news of the world by twenty-five, uh, and I got into the mirror. Uh, why? In, why, why? Why was that? That was just the category, so you'll you'll have to read into that. (laughs) I was voted most likely to have uh, a divorce. Uh, I I don't think there was an age limit attached to that, so I'm I'm happily married. (laughs) Was this this a a typical thing to be going on in in a primary school or a... a, a, a secondary school. (laughs) This was organised by the school to build the self-esteem, was it? (laughs) (laughs) This was a... um, I did. I think it was student-led yearbook thing. So I happened to have read through it just the other day. And of course, the yearbook's an old thing now. Nobody prints anything. Um, but they had a sort of list of 30 categories of voting. And the three that I was voted for, one was um, most likely to be in the news of the world. Uh, and I did get into the Daily Mirror. So um, 
uh, most likely to be divorced. Uh, and there was one other category that I can't remember, but it's something on a similar theme. So apparently my fellow students thought I was going to be controversial or, or do something risky in some format. Um, I suppose the... Where, where, where did that come from? And presumably this wasn't out of the blue. You, you must have been partly responsible for, given that you're an image maker, an image projector now. This It sounds like this was part of a, a trajectory. And, you know, there's, there's other little things. So you were in Sierra Leone in 2007, and that's not a that's not the place that everyone else has. So maybe, maybe you know, you kicked off your story really with 2007 and your, your jump to Poland, and that's perfectly reasonable because that's what I asked you. <laughs> but it, it, could you give a few bullet points about... We will put a post to your, a, a link in the show notes to your, your LinkedIn so people can take a look, but can you give the sort of telegraphic points of your life up to then? And, you know, while doing that, giving a sense of where you thought you might be ending, ending up or heading for or what would make you happy what your ambitions were and it is this a crash it doesn't look as if this is a crashing disappointment <laughs> you, you always wanted to be an accountant <laughs> or whatever it was but it, and, and then we'll move on to your current skills and you know what you're doing now because but I, I do think it's important it's really interesting for me anyway to get a sense of how people got to where they are now yeah okay so um which part of that question should I answer first well uh, maybe going straight back to the start, what, what did they expect me? I, I've always felt like the I was the court jester or somewhere off the side of the stage, uh, poking fun at the um, the main actors. Uh, I've never been the main actor, but I've always had this sort of the court jester actually is a, plays a fascinating role in Shakespearean plays, etc. And um, I, that's always been the role I've enjoyed the most. I, I had this character at school I invented called the Green Pimpernel. And the Green Pimpernel would write satirical graffiti, not not a, not rude graffiti or <laughs> you know, enormous great letters on, on the walls like we have in Poland, but just sort of witty. Well, I thought they were witty anyway. Um, uh, satirical lines about the school uh, up on the walls, etc. And that was very much aligned with the, this idea of being looking out from the outside in on, on the play that we we're all playing for ourselves. Um, so. I suppose that sense of being uh, somewhat different from others, yeah, is, is something that's tailed me throughout my life. So at my school, for example, I, I would wear, um, I, I would deliberately wear civvies, and we, we, it was a minor private school, Ipswich school, and uh, the teachers would ask me, you know, why are you in shorts and t-shirt on a hot day? And I'd say, oh, so I have sporting, <laughs> sporting requirements uh, later on. And they go, oh, very well then. And only got away with this day after day. Um, so something about the sense of um, not playing by the rules. Uh, appeals to me greatly. That's why one of my favourite books is Catch-22, because if you look at the way Catch-22 is written, it reverses most of the precepts that we live our lives by, um, including the linguistic precepts. Then, having gone to university, I went to work in government. And this period of my early 20s was, I suppose, formative, because I'd, um, I worked for a member of parliament. Um, I worked at the Department of Health. And then I heard about this um, this fearsome minister, I suppose you could say, called Sriti Vidira. And she was working at the Department for Business. She'd previously been at the Department for International Development. Um, a very interesting person. She had been an Asian female banker in the 1980s when being a woman and being dark skinned and being five foot three were definitely not uh, characteristics that you wanted to have in an all male, all white you know, um, very uh, misogynistic environment. A brilliant mind. She'd advised John Major. She'd advised Tony Blair. 
And then she'd gone on to become the chief advisor for Gordon Brown, who for non-British listeners was the Chancellor of the Exchequer for many years and then became prime minister. And um, she then went on to become a minister when when Gordon Brown became prime minister. And she had this um, fearsome reputation for being intellectually brilliant, but very, very difficult to work with. And I was, um, I don't know, I suppose 25, 24 at the time. And I took the challenge on of going to work for her in her private office. And throughout this period, I was working as a private secretary to these people who were quite brilliant, members of parliament, um, a former head of the National Health Service, Lord Crisp. Um, one after the other, I went and saw people at the top of their game and, and uh, after many decades of um, experience in many different branches. Working for Shriti, however, was a very different experience. It was, it was a brutal period because just as I joined her, the global crisis hit. And she was one of the key architects of the UK's response to the global crisis. And, you know, there were some pretty sticky weekends. I am not, uh, I'm by no means an economist, and I certainly had absolutely no part in playing in, in, in the solution. But I did bring the pizzas to the guide. <laughs> uh, long weekends. Um, you'd, you'd be sitting in the cinema, your phone would go, Shriti's calling, you've got to go straight away. No, no question of even staying to watch the end of uh, Titanic or whatever the hell it was that you're watching. Um, after 18 months of doing that, endless weeks of extraordinarily hard work working with this brilliant but, but difficult person, um, I had I was completely and utterly exhausted and I was kind of put out to farm, I suppose, in a way. What I realised was I didn't want to work in government, even though I'm fascinated by UK politics today, still completely and utterly obsessed with the subject and had seen uh, some of the most extraordinary moments of the, of the UK history right up close. You know, I was, I was in number 10, I was in the cabinet office. Uh, you know, I accidentally walked backwards into the prime minister by mistake, coming out of a briefing room, uh, those kind of things. It was, a, it was a fantastic experience, but it had chewed me up and spat me out. Uh, and I was tired of London, I suppose a little bit tired of life, uh, uh, to confirm Samuel Pepys's uh, famous expression. And which which is, exactly if, if you're tired of London, you're tired of life. And I to wish I had a corollary. If you're tired of London, you're tired of looking for a parking space. But, uh, <laughs> but that was, I think that's changed now. But anyway, so, 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 okay, so you got a bit burnt out doing that and you, you needed a reboot. And Yeah, 100% burnt out. You know, ooh, I don't like London anymore and I don't want to work in government. And um, my then girlfriend at the time, Joanna, had moved back to Warsaw. So it was just a great chance for a fresh start. But what I did learn from that is the power of, can I swear, Richard? I should probably yeah, not yeah, swear, yeah, should yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. You may, you may it, swear. <laughs> extremely fucking hard work. I mean, Shruti would work all day, all night. And I suppose I had been in that classic British middle class, private school, white, you know, everything's really laid out. The future seems to be just one step after the other. And success is assured by dint of the fact that you just happen to have the right, uh, as, as uh, someone once said, the lucky sperm club. <laughs> You'd won the ticket at the lucky sperm club. I realized actually that life wasn't going to be laid on a plate for me. And I was going to have to work my absolute ass off uh, to get something done. So it may have chewed me up, but it, it did spit me out a different person. And I came to Poland very, very determined. Uh, That's first year i hope you can hear me still yeah. uh, that first year of living in Poland was extremely difficult uh but i wasn't going to go back and everybody thought i was completely mad and i looked at my pay slip the other day sort of 1500 swati here 2000 swati here that was the day when i could really could have done with someone looking for an english speaker uh a difficult time very very difficult but boy am i glad i stayed 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that, 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 that helps set, set the context. And in fact, I, the reason I came across, came across you at all was that there was an event going on in the British Embassy a few months ago, a sort of a consultation exercise with the British diaspora, which, um, and I noticed you had made a video for them. Is that correct? You were somehow involved in marketing that event. Is that correct? Yeah, I did a um, so, so my my vlog. I suppose you could loosely say my vlog is probably one of the best known English channels about life in Poland. I think so. It's the only one really uh, in Polish, at least. And um, I worked at the British Embassy for about two and a half years uh, when I came to also helping British companies uh, export into Poland. And then I worked at the British Polish Chamber of Commerce. So um, I, I get on really well with the guys at the embassy. They do a fantastic job. And the work they're doing to talk to British people about Brexit uh, was something I was quite happy to support. And I put out a little video uh, and also filmed the event where they met with about 100 British people about, about Brexit. So, so, so when you came here, your job with the British, I used to be vice chairman of the British Polish Chamber of Commerce in Krakow and about 20 years ago, a long time ago. And I have some, over the years, had dealings with the different, the name has changed over the years, but the, the entity which is supposed to help uh, British companies meet Polish companies and you know, the sort of export promotion UKTI, I think it's called Trade and Investment now. And but you did when you came to Poland. So you, if, it doesn't sound you were struggling if you had a British British salary. So you got that later. Was that you? no, no, it was, uh, uh, not another British salary. There's two types of civil servant. There's the ones that they send from the, the country, and then there's the local ones. And even though I was a UK citizen and I had government experience, including trade and investment advisory experience, I was still counted as a local uh, member of staff. So struggling? No. Uh, <laughs> free fuel, free schooling, free housing, free everything uh, and all sorts of allowances. Absolutely uh, not. Okay, 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 so you weren't, you weren't on, the, you, you weren't on the, the sort of the, the privileged end of the, the foreign posting. <laughs> uh, I wish. Boy, do those guys have it sweet in a world of, you know, like uh, pay for your own costs and then re-invoice your company and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a cushy number. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I um, appreciate we're talking about uh, effectively your client that um, I was struck by the fact that having lived in Poland since 1991, uh, this was the first consultation exercise in the last 20 six years that I was aware of um you know I'm I I there was a British ambassador called Charles Crawford or Sir Charles Crawford who's who I invited to speak at a TEDx Krakow and I got to got to know him he quit the he quit the foreign office uh uh, he's quite a quite a controversial figure in um in a, a variety of ways but there isn't uh I think, would you agree that generally speaking, the, the British diaspora doesn't keep together and so like identify as a group in the same way, like you get Chinatown and Little Poland and, you know, the, 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 the people from somewhere, but the Brits don't do that. Is that an experience you notice the Brits don't do that in Warsaw as much or is Warsaw different? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I never wanted to spend much time with Brits because, exactly, let's face exactly, it. Exactly, when... exactly. exactly. And this, is, this is the thing that most, and most Brits feel likewise, and it's not just about you. It's, it's, not, it's a very interesting fact. That it's not like I detest the Brits as a group, but it's not, it's not, a, sort of, well, it's not a very... Is it because of Brexit? Is it a, is it, but it's not a new thing. It's not just we're a toxic brand right now. It's, uh... <laughs> we, are, uh, we are really quite hypocritical people because the things that... I mean, everybody says this but the things we hate about foreigners in our own country we are more than happy to do in other foreigners countries um 
you know, like not learning the language, sticking to our own customs and just doing it the way we like. And um, there isn't the community and certainly there hasn't really been much community activity. There's no real organization beyond the Chamber of Commerce. Um, does it count? Yes, I think it does. I mean, probably there are tens of thousands of Brits in Poland. We're just thinking about our experience, at least. So if you're a Chinese listener who was looking to learn English and entrepreneurialism in Europe, this may not be interesting for you. But hell, this is Richard's podcast. So I'll, I'll go where he takes me. Um, I think there's there's tens of thousands of people. So it's maybe 10 percent of the number of uh, polls that are in the UK. And our interests, the interests of British citizens in Poland do count. Um, after Brexit, our lives are going to change. And if we're not lucky enough to be eligible for Polish citizenship, then things like being able to run a business, being able to get a uh, mortgage and all sorts of other things, which we take for granted now, uh, will uh, adapt. I'm hoping to become a Polish citizen. So hopefully that issue will just disappear. But nonetheless, there is something to be said for the communities that do stick together a bit. Uh, The Polish community in the UK is, is fairly fragmented as well. But there's things like Polish shops, there's Polish beer, there's Polish restaurants. And you get the sense that the Poles accidentally or deliberately have just got a slightly better rep in the UK, <laughs> hard as it is to believe, than, than we do in, in, in Poland. Maybe it's a sign of our ability to integrate that we're just under the radar uh, and pretty invisible. But yes, it is indeed true that that was the first time that normal people had gone into the British embassy uh, since I don't know when. Yes, and anyway, I, I was... Uh... I, I was very, yeah. I, I did become a, a Polish uh, Polish citizen uh, on the twentieth of April two thousand and seventeen. It's like that's when I got the letter, can ah. confirming it, and so I passed. Congratulations! Uh, I, I, it was a really important moment for me, and although the trigger was Brexit, I'd been thinking about it for a while. But it was a, it was an emotional as well as a, as well as. A, um, a practical, pragmatic decision, and it it was emotional because I was pro Poland, uh, but it was also emotional because I was absolutely horrified by what my our compatriots had done back in back in the UK. I I, I actually wanted to do the most public and deliberate and intentional thing I could show that this really mattered to me and I felt less identified with what's going back on back back in the UK than than I ever have done I think and I I'm very very uh, interested to so so I, I don't think our listeners will want to hear you and me, uh, <laughs> uh, rant on about Brexit but having launched a topic and we will move on to your professional <laughs> professional experience in a moment um, could you say four or five ways in which or the four or five things that you'd like the listeners to know that you think about Brexit. What's interesting is I don't know what you're going to say. I can guess, but I don't know. So four or five things that you think are really important about the impact of, of, of Brexit on, 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 on the country, on, on the Europe, on the world. Yeah, good question. Um, and actually, I, I do have an opinion which most people don't like, which is I'm an eternal optimist. I think everything's going to be fine, but things could be better. Uh, and I'm struck by the way that history dominates the way that we see the world and, and the future. My life has been pretty damn rosy. If I have to compare it to the people I see in at the street in Poland here <clears throat> or, or the people I met in Sierra Leone, uh, because life has been good to me, I'm basically operating on a set of principles that life is going to carry on being good for me. Uh, but I am pretty optimistic. I think everything's going to be just fine. The world is incrementally getting better. But... Uh, <laughs> the decision to leave the European Union uh, was a huge shock. I I have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, 
I feel very European. I'm an immigrant living in bloody Poland, for God's sake, and British. And I came here and was able to set up and do everything I wanted to practically as if I was living in the UK with, with less than an afternoon's work. Uh, and that freedom was granted to me by membership of the European Union. I wouldn't want that freedom to be taken away from my daughter or, or anyone else, for that matter. I think it's a great thing. Um, on the other hand, I think the European Union has a lot to pay for 20 or 30 years of um, lack of dialogue with the communities that it serves, because it does serve the communities of the European Union, and is in part responsible for the situation we're in. It's not good enough just to say that British newspapers ask stupid, difficult questions. There has to be a sense of, well, where is your responsibility for it? I had hoped that Brexit might be the cold shower that those institutions that we rarely hear from and, and hardly know. Uh, and certainly don't understand, and that's probably true of Poland as much as the UK, my experience, might then start to act uh, and and speak and, and interact with the communities they serve in a different way. But I haven't seen that. Now, of course, it's easy to say they need to talk more and it's, and it's all on them. But uh, one can think about this in an individual way. I'm OK. I'll become a Polish citizen uh, and a corporate collective way. Damn, I think it's, it's going to be a big shock. But I just hope that the shock will be... Um, uh, relatively uh, limited and I do see some benefit to being able to negotiate individual trade deals with significant partners. Will we get a great trade deal with the United States of America? Uh, not the one that we have right now um, but who knows frankly speaking nobody knows until everything is agreed nothing is agreed and the future is unclear and as you know Richard business people communities nobody likes uncertainty and there's plenty of that around. So why on earth we lobbed a grenade of, of self-doubt and, and immolation in, into the mix at this particular time in our national uh, life, I, I frankly don't know. I voted to stay in, uh, and I stand by that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't get a vote at all, despite employing about 60 people in the United Kingdom and um, feeling that the UK is very much part of my life. Um, mm. So, so um, obviously... I would have voted the same way as you. I'm not nearly as relaxed. I think privileged people... I mean, I, you, you say you're privileged. I think I was even more privileged than you. I went to Winchester College, one of the most famous most, most, <laughs> most famous public schools. I, I went to Cambridge, Cambridge University. I've got lots of... You know, one of my one of my great uncle has a statue on the bank of the banks of the Thames. I, I, sort of, I don't feel I'm as aristocratic as all that, but I, but I do, I do feel that um, people like you and me will be okay, but it's... The, yep. <clears throat> like the the idea that you know a young man or woman could like hitchhike or get a cheap flight down to Milan if they met someone from Milan and try and get a job there and you know if it becomes like going to America which if if the people who want to earn freedom of movement um, succeed in doing that which was one of their primary drivers um, then you know our, our children's generation will be much less privileged than parents and I, 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 you've got one child have you yeah. I, I feel that it's a sort of fundamental biological human thing that unites most parents in most countries, that the decent people want their kids to have at least as good a life as they did. And, you know, that the, the idea that the people who will soon be dead are willfully taking that away from their grandchildren, I find um, almost <laughs> undiscussable. However, let's just park that. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll park that if, uh, because I don't, I don't think, um, I think British people going on and getting, trying not to show, trying not to show how upset they are in their very British way, in their British way isn't, isn't a good thing. Um, coming, so, um, coming back to, let, let's talk about, um, what entrepreneurs can learn from you because, you know, I was, uh, uh, Sam Cook, who co-founded this 
podcast with me um, set himself up as a, a digital marketing consultant telling stories, building what are called sales funnels. And you have to be very careful with um, online marketing people because there's a huge amount of jargon and within the business <laughs> within the business people talk about SaaS and ACVs and <laughs> ARRs and uh, ATMs and, and it's a way of establishing that you might know what you're talking about to specialists perhaps um, I believe in simplicity and so let's agree we're going to try to avoid using jargon um, I'm completely sold on the idea that uh, Online marketing has enormous potential for almost all businesses, whether you're selling coffins, coffins or muffins. You know, it's like whatever you're doing, but particularly whether it's B2B, business to business, business to – there I was, B2B, using jargon, right? Whether you're selling to other businesses, whether you're selling to individuals, whether you're selling to governments or whether you're not selling at all, just organizing, you know, trading on barter deals. It's all – being transformed by this technology of, of, of the internet and social media. But that's my perspective. And what would you say, how has it impacted you and how are you helping your clients or business partners improve their business? What, what are the key things you're doing? Uh, yeah, I was working at the British Produce Chamber of Commerce. So I set up a, uh, I guess you could say, a kind of sales and marketing consultancy which was part funded by the UK government um, to help British exporters come into Poland. This was part of a kind of outsourcing process. Does, does it still so, exist? Does it still exist? It does, yes. So, so uh, obviously, and maybe you've already given it in the, in the spreadsheet, but we'd obviously share links to that in the show notes. Well, um, uh, I, I'm not working for them now, so it doesn't bother me whether they get helped or not. But uh, okay, Paddy will introduce you. Paddy will introduce you for a short, uh, for a modest, <laughs> for a modest fee. <laughs> they, they, uh, yeah, they, 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 feel free to hire me, guys, if you want me back. Then I, I set this up, and it was part of an outsourcing process going on in 40 countries. And the UK government, like all governments or most governments, provides its businesses with some form of governmental help. So that's for exporters um, who, for whatever reason, can't break into a market uh, on their own. Now, um, the model that we followed was one that I'd learned at the embassy, and it was mostly around smiling and dialing. So picking up the phone and calling in a distributor in Białystok um, or, or Wrocław or wherever in Poland, trying to persuade them to have a meeting, a face-to-face -face meeting with a British company. And we represented companies from all across the UK, all sorts of sectors, you know, 20, 30 different types of businesses from nuts and bolts to coffins to furs to bull sperm, which, by the way, is a significant British export we should all be proud of. So shout out to the bull sperm. Um, the the I suppose you can say the manufacturers is more like the coaxers of bull sperm. Just um, I have to get this in here. Oh, it's a real, <laughs> this is a real night night's move, as the psychologists say. Do you, know, do, do, do you know about the beef and dairy podcast? Beef and Dairy Network podcast. <laughs> I do not. With Ben Partridge. It's superb. It's the most amazing comedy you can imagine. It's, it's a, a comedy podcast as if run by someone podcasting for people interested in uh, working in or, or only interested in the beef and dairy. <laughs> and um, uh, I, um, 
Once you've listened to it, you can never, you can never listen to a serious industry podcast again. <laughs> anyway, I will, share, I will share that in the show notes. I'm an enormous fan. Yeah. Um, and, and they have 23,000 listeners, um, 23,000 downloads, which is not huge, but it's not trivial. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll be straight after this interview. I'll go and, but listener, dear listener, stay on this because we're going to hear Paddy's story first before before you get into the, <laughs> the, the deeper story pro, of bull sperm. The, the, the pro stuff. <laughs> Who doesn't want to hear about the bull sperm now? Um, so anyway, I was working in this industry and I set this company up, and it was an outsourced business within a chat with an existing business. Um, so I got a fat wadge of government money. And basically a clean slate with what to do with it. It's like the, the dream investor didn't ask too many questions and what, had a lot of what money. Was the, what was the fat wedge? And this was UK cash for in, as a subsidy or was it equity in the business? I'm quite curious. The, um, the government were part funding, um, I suppose, this new team to be set up with a provider. And the provider they picked was the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the British Public Chamber of Commerce. So I, I was kind of headhunted over to set this all up. Uh, with the objective of setting up basically a consultancy agency that would take over the services that were being provided by uh, the UK government and over time would become self-sufficient. Um, and that was an amazing experience because I was only about 29 or something and uh, had a big budget and had to but hire how, people. How, how much was the budget? Because I'm quite in- people will be interested to know what the British government gives, and we are ta- the British government believes in transparency. So, <laughs> as a UK taxpayer, I'm fully entitled to this information. Yeah, you, you are quite entitled to find this out if you wish to lodge it as a freedom of information request. But are, you refu- um, is, are you refusing to tell me? Or- I'm not, Richard. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, year one budget was around half a million pounds. Uh, year two was something like three hundred thousand. Year three was two fifty, and it's gone down year on year. I left after three years. Uh, <laughs> Uh, as the money dried up, Paddy <laughs> moved on, which is a very, very a sign you're, you're, you're just as smart as you look. <laughs> as, as our fantastic income level rose year on year, exceeding the targets that have been set with us uh, by our investor. So <laughs> we, um, it was a wonderful experience. It was the closest I've come to, to launching a business, I suppose, in, in the classic sense. Not everybody has that kind of level of investment from from day zero so i won't pretend that it was anything like the typical business experience but it was a fantastic one for me i had about 25 people uh, at its height we were two or three times more productive than the people we were replacing and um, we were number one out of every one of the 41 countries uh, that we were running for three years in a row but the the model uh, that we were using of smiling and dialing was something that basically wasn't that much different from what had been going on in 1997 or even 1987 yeah, face-to-face contact is important and, and one-on-one relationships, etc. super important business, always will be. But trying to ring somebody who doesn't know you and couldn't give two tinkers about your expensive British product to persuade them to spend an hour of their time meeting someone that they don't know or don't like in a busy day when they already have an existing... You know, it, it's, it's, it's basically it's just spray and pray, hoping that out of 100 calls, one might turn up. And and was that, was that, was that, I, I, I am a shareholder in a company called PMR, and PMR used yes, to... Yes, you are. Yes, you, you used to, <laughs> yes I am. <laughs> uh, and uh, PMR uh, used to provide market entry services, and I remember, I remember someone from UKTI, and as if we got a mutual acquaintance or friend, Martin, Martin Oxley, who, yes. uh, and, and someone who worked with him said the existence of companies like PMR Consulting calls into question our raison d'etre, because if you can make a profit doing what we we need to get a subsidy to do. 
uh, which because we were helping not just British but companies from all over the world um, enter enter the Polish market and other markets back then. I, I'm, not yes. sure if, I'm not sure if we're still doing it, but the, I remember it was the UKTI was very uh, was subsidised, so they were they undercut us in putting together these lists of potential partners and calling up. But you and yeah, <clears throat> but 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 I'm, I'm, it wasn't. It wasn't, an, as you say, if you if you can't choose your clients, it's not that easier. It's not an automatic uh, win to. Be, it's not gonna, if you make expensive British gloves and you don't have a, that much of a brand, but you've got a local following in Luton. The idea that <laughs> the idea that you're going to cream it in Poland is far from the truth. What sort of hit rate were you getting? How many of your clients actually managed to make profitable business out of what you were doing? Well, I- I mean, this is this was like the story of my life for many years because I did this at, at the embassy and then I set up this organization that was number one and, and it was doing exactly that. It was effectively undercutting the private market. And back in London, they were asking themselves, like, why are we doing this? I mean, frankly, if a company can't make it on its own by hiring a private contractor like PMR or, or just doing its own work or hiring a local uh, native speaker in it in you know back at uh, back at uk why can't it make it where where is the case for the government to be doing this mm. um and actually is it artificially inflating companies chances by providing low-cost services that essentially are telling them to go i mean poland is a tough market to sell into hyper tough all exporting or sales or all sales is hard but some is some of it's harder than others and you know, we produce expensive stuff and we have to ship it halfway across Europe and um, Poles are ultra price conscious and they earn, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred uh, euros or pounds a year, a month, sorry. These are not people with cash to burn on expensive luxury mint choc chip biscuits, you know, and the kind of stuff that we're great at doing, beers, etc. Although that market has changed. So um, honestly, significant successes real hyper million pound plus contracts a few did some really great work in um some a couple of software businesses one major contractors um some great british manufacturers winning million pound plus contracts but the vast majority of the companies coming through the books whether it's the embassy or the chamber of commerce probably weren't really in the right state to succeed anyway because they hadn't gone through this difficult process of having to win it themselves and also, it's a question of you know, company. It's not all alike. If someone's not doing well in Britain, if they're doing well in Britain already, they're good at something. They know they know what their product is. They know what their market is. Then finding the equivalents of those in Poland, you can usually do these days. You can you know, five minutes on Google, and if you you're already beginning to identify your target market. And the other thing is the the traditional model of the the importing distributor. That's how I made my money in the 1990s. Was yeah. in those in those days, market information was hard to get hold get hold of. Speaking and you you your distributor not only. Um, bundled a lot of things which have been slightly debundled and I imagine what you're going to go on to say is that the online marketing gave the British customers the chance to much more accurately target the sort of people they might want to do business with than the method you'd been applying until you left right yeah, I mean, actually, this is going directly back to the question you asked at the start, and uh, and I'm really glad we're talking about this because I haven't spent very much time thinking about it. But after three years of working at the Chamber of Commerce, I became very convinced that the old model of smiling and dialing and um, just hoping for the best by calling 100 people and seeing what comes up was super out of date. And I didn't really want to be spending time in a sector that's that's dying. It's not fun. 
um, and you do feel like you're you're wasting your time a bit. So I started then to try and develop content marketing and digital marketing within the organization I was working in, but they didn't have the hunger for it. Um, much as I love the Chamber of Commerce and everybody there, um, they're, they're, you know, it's a, it's a pretty traditional business model in of itself. Uh, but by the way, for, not for non-British listeners, when, when a British person says, much as I love the people at, that, that, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's very similar to someone saying um, the, people work, the people who work in this organisation are really intelligent. And depending on the tone of, the tone of voice, um, I'm, not saying you, I'm not saying you positively dislike them, but there's, there's, a, there's a, a use of language for which the Brits are famous where what you say and what you mean Anyway, I'm just clocking that because it's it's quite nice to have uh, someone who who may need translating from English to English for <laughs> Many of my good friends uh, worked at the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and, and some still do. Uh, <laughs> that's just, uh, Re- recalibrating the answer is not helping. <laughs> Anyone? I think you just, you've lost several friends already. It's obvious. <laughs> No, I mean, Chamber of Commerce, there goes, okay, so where are you working right now, dear listener? Now, what is the situation in your industry right now? I can tell you, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this with taxi drivers. He, he says he would go to taxi drivers in San Francisco and say, guys, you need to panic because Uber is coming around the corner. And they go, ah, I'll retire. Don't worry, it'll be fine. And Uber just gutted the industry. Well, the old school uh, import, export distributor, uh, certainly information-based uh, advisory consultancy for foreign markets, you know, that has disappear look at the translation market i mean for most british companies they used to have to buy a translation service to get their sales brochure and their product brochure translated for a market they're entering into most don't bother they just go on google translate and even though it makes them look stupid because you get all sorts of horrible translation mistakes still you know they'd they'd rather do that for free than pay 600 pounds to to somebody to do it for them and so on and so forth forth these industries are collapsing literally in front of them but that doesn't mean that you can't make money i mean the vinyl market there are still people making money from vinyl still people making money from hard print anyone listening to this who spends more than a hundred thousand euros a year on translation my most successful business is a translation company and we we work with fortune 500 companies (laughs) and and one of the reasons one of the reasons that um we'll get onto content creation and content-based marketing sooner or later if you're going to communicate your brand to people in different countries and you do it well online you reach them much 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 more cheaply than flying to warsaw getting a rented car and driving to wrotswab if you if you put that money into a well-delivered video or infographic that's targeted to exactly the people you want to do, you're reaching your target audience at a fraction of the cost, even if you translate it properly. <laughs> the com- well, yeah, com- this is- com- compared to flying there and going there and you know, randomly standing in a corridor at a trade fair in Poznan. <laughs> One of my favourite the trade fair is literally, please, just I hope that somebody today of value comes to me. So uh, where was I going with this? I think talking about the Chamber of Commerce model is fascinating because here you have a business model which is essentially based on join our club and when you get access to our club, you get to meet people and those people are going to be good for your business. And um, nobody joins, <clears throat> for any, vast majority of members join because they need to meet people to get sales. So here you have another industry. You know, if I go onto LinkedIn right now, I can type CEO uh, IT Poland and I'll find 30,000 people on LinkedIn straight away. I, I don't need to join any club to be able to find out the names, addresses, the company names, et cetera, of all of those industries. Um, and the fact that people don't use, by the way, LinkedIn's advanced search functionality to find their customers is absolutely bonkers because it's there on a plate. 
Um, and there are a couple of ways that you can get to those people, even and if you also, don't know. I noticed you mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk, and if you're a serious CEO who takes your job serious, oh, sorry, a serious, if you're a serious CEO, you should be doing this yourself, should, you ought to, if you're a responsible person, because then you can manage people, because you shouldn't be doing it all the time. But the, these like basic business skills now, it's like how to sell something. You shouldn't be running a company if you can't, if you haven't read the Ladybird book of sales. And if you don't know, <laughs> if you don't know how to find target customers on LinkedIn, um, you shouldn't be in business. Because, and it's not just LinkedIn, you can also go to the equivalent of Companies House, the KRS, you type in company names, you get, you get the names of all the management board members. It's so simple and it's, you can do it while this podcast is going on. It's not, in fact, you might make, I can't imagine you to make more money doing anything other than listening to the podcast because the pearls of wisdom being shared are, are, are such, what are, the, what are they called? Um, knowledge bombs. Knowledge bombs, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, um, James, Johnny Lee Dumas talks about knowledge bombs and uh, if he, if he, I, can, I won't post a link to his podcast. Actually, I should. He's been on mine, so I should uh, should have him on here. But well, here's the thing. You can always Google it, you know. So uh, what's the point of even providing links when you know someone's going to be able to Google the words? But uh, what, what are we getting to here? Industries are, are transforming. And obviously, I'm not the first person to say that. It's uh, nothing revelatory. But I was at the Chamber of Commerce realizing that, hey, if I want to be making money and doing something interesting, it better be in an industry which is growing. And the old model that we're currently using right now, sure, it's helping these companies that are coming in, um, but it, it's not as successful as I want it to be. And it's also not something that I'm passionate about. So I became very interested in video marketing and, and did about 50, 60 uh, videos on the Polish economy, the Polish market as a way of getting a better client flow uh, into our pipeline and trying to be, be more independent of the government, which was still our main provider of leads. We also had it very easy because the vast majority of our customers came through a network of advisors in the UK um, who were there to help their customers get to, out to foreign markets. So um, it, it was pretty easy compared to the actual business of acquiring customers. Um, so I started to uh, become very interested in video marketing, and I'm not scared of the camera. I'm certainly not scared of the microphone. Um, I always treat them as opportunities to get my message across and, and, and not to feel worried about how my voice sounds or any mistakes I make did, in did, English did, or did, Polish. Did you teach yourself that, those skills or did you have them before you came out here? It, it came from singing. So I sung for about 12 years in bands uh, and I, you know, I'm 22 years old and I'm in front of 800 people in Essen in Germany. Uh, scared shitless, <laughs> heart racing, pumping. And actually you realise that those are all good things. The fear and the nerves and the terror and the self-doubt, they're all essential parts of that wonderful high that you get, uh, the pumping adrenaline that you get when you stand off the stage. So it's something that I practiced and I didn't realize at the time that singing was going to help me become a great video uh, guy. But I realized pretty quickly on that I'm not afraid. I'm really not afraid. You know, we have one life to lead and I'm not going to let any self-doubt uh, and, and classic British nagging self-doubt get in the way of what I'm passionate about saying and doing. So I, we were getting some great results. We did some fantastic animations. Um, still super proud of some of the animations we did to help our customers understand what our client sales process was. Um, we were getting a lot of leads that would drop off, uh, difficult customers, etc. And we tried when, to use video. Say, sorry to interrupt. When you say we, um, I, I, is this this is after you've left the Chamber of Commerce? And, and, and who is we? Do you have business partners? Are you by yourself or what? St still in the Chamber of Commerce. Um, still working with an amazing guy called Russell Tolson, who'd, who'd run big factories in the UK before. And Russell and I were thinking about how we can reinvent this model. And we did. We, we were number one out of the outsource leaders. So we did a whole bunch of things differently. Um, 
oh heck my powers my powers <laughs> cycling down um uh, we uh used video marketing as a way essentially of trying to work more effectively with our customers to increase the lead flow and increase the lead quality and decrease the number of drop-offs and increase the, the, the amount of success. So I became very interested in the medium of video and its ability to help us help customers. Um, and when I left the Chamber of Commerce, I did two things. First of all, I started vlogging in Polish about my life as a, this is B2C, so this is more like um, consumer type stuff. Um, and the second thing was I, I started to become fascinated in digital marketing because I met a guy called Sam Cook. Our, our, our hero, uh, uh, co-host of um, Project Casimir for, for many a podcast. And he had obviously had a few years more digital marketing experience than me. And I started to see, hey, shit, that whole internet thing, <laughs> maybe it is changing the way that we do marketing. There is actually a way that you can acquire customers at scale who are interested in what you do, actually care about you as a person, have, feel a connection to you. Um, there is a way that you can educate them to uh, get better outcomes for themselves and there is a way that you can help them to buy your services that's ethical uh, and, and can be done literally at scale. So what is a funnel? A funnel, to come back to that early discussion, is essentially a automated sales system that you can use. And when it works, boy, is it amazing because it spits out customers that actually want to buy. And you don't have to smile and dial. You don't have to Google. You don't have to hope that someone comes knocking on the door. Your funnel is there to produce the customers um, that you can actually help the best. So after a year of working at a small Polish um, marketing agency, I was the only foreigner there. It was quite an interesting experience. I was brought in to try and develop the, the company's digital marketing experience, a uh, 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 portfolio with some success uh, and quite a lot of failure. Uh, I learned a lot from that experience. I then joined Sam and his team at James Cook Media um, and without wanting to plug the company that much, because I'm sure Sam's done it over previous <laughs> podcasts, at James Cook Media, we build digital marketing funnels. So there's, we've got about seven different agencies under one roof, from video to copywriting to um, CRM and CMS software to automations, integrations, you name it. Any any number of uh, uh, wordy uh, verbiage to, to throw into the mix there. And it's fascinating because this is the model of the future. And if you're not using the internet right now to sell your stuff, my dear listener, then boy, you better hurry up because all of those traditional models are falling by the wayside. And um, if I was a British exporter now, I wouldn't be advising them to, to, to telephone distributors. I'd be advising them to do direct sales uh, at scale uh, to the markets they want to target. You, you reminded me of a, a story when I, uh, another company I was still involved in, Unicard, uh, we sell plastic card systems. We used to do things like the macro cash and carry card many years ago. And um, we do mass transit ticketing still. Uh, a British company called Megit had a, uh, uh, which I think is in Poole and Dorset, had a company called Wayfarer Transit Systems, and they were doing the sort of the ticket counselling systems you get on trams and buses. And they, I found them in a in somehow, and they 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 came to visit. And in fact, as is often the case for a, a high-priced British exporter, they had a perfectly good product, but it was way overpriced for the Polish product. And there's a, a very good Polish company called RNG, uh, which is sort of out in the sticks which is all over all the Polish trams and now and buses and exporting and doing extremely well. But when they came out to me, they sent a fax with a list of all the 
Brit all the Polish mass transit authorities and the names of the managing directors. And I was blown away at how well organised they were. And it turned out that they'd bought a they'd bought a trade directory called Jane's Urban Transport Systems, which was an old trade directory. And they used it for all their marketing. And th these are things that you used to be able to buy. And I think Jane's now has it all online. But it was it was available if you were well organised and you knew where to go. <laughs> and, but the point was that he what the what, what the export manager had done um i think it was called kevin ritchie if his name comes back to me um he uh had basically done what we should have done and he had done it in the uk and i was you know it's always slightly disturbing when the, you think you're going to do something <laughs> Turns out they don't, it, and it showed me how we weren't needed and this is true in spades now you absolutely don't need a local guy to go and find your customers and and then what you can do if you can run your multilingual well localized website and well localized local content going for your target market then you can find a local distributor saying i've got a customer for you and that local distributor obviously is in a much weaker position to negotiate um, what margin is for them and what margin is for you, because you know, and, and that's that's the secret of the beauty of this is you know you can go to Cincinnati with a couple of sales lead and and find your target distributor, go there and say, are you interested in coming with me to find my customer? The fact that you're from the, UK, <laughs> the fact you're from the UK or Poland um, hasn't stopped you going going in disintermediating, and so that that is the. Um, that is an important message, and if you, anyone listening to this, if you don't get this, then Google it a bit. <laughs> You'll get there very fast. Um, but just coming on to your, your, your consumer stuff, this, this quite popular or very popular YouTube channel you've got, can you talk us through not about the production? Well, maybe you've already talked about the idea of explaining, explaining Poland in Polish to what it looks like from the British perspective. Um, what was, what's the why, your motivation? But also take us through the economics because, you know, word on the street is even if you have tons and tons of traffic on your YouTube channel, it's hard to monetize. And it's not just YouTube, it's Facebook as well. And so uh, number one is why do you do it? Is it personal branding? Do you have a mission to share some insight? Uh, so your why? And then just a few comments on what it, what it means in terms of money to have so much traffic. Sure. Um Okay, so I mean that story has evolved over time. Richard, I'm just going to turn. My, I'm going to have to turn my video off, I think, just to try and conserve the batteries. I'm down to twenty percent now. Okay, okay. Um, I can switch onto a laptop, but then that would interrupt the, no, the no, broadcast. No, we've only got about. Well, I think it's five minutes more, and we're done. So, so let's ah, okay, just keep, keep, okay. keep going. Yeah. Okay, so um, that story has evolved over time, but one thing I do know is that it's it's bloody hard work. Um, and the, you know, I've got a day job, I've got a kid, etc. So getting up at three in the morning to edit a film on your own for three hours, and then again the next day, and then go and do some additional shooting. And if you're not passionate about something like that, you'll give it up. So I have a huge amount of respect for all those idiot kids bloggers and the makeup people and all these video, these creators, as they call themselves, because you know what? They may look daft to the average adult, but boy, if they work fucking hard to get there um, and it's a passion for them. Now, my um, niche, I suppose you could call it, is, is a little bit different. There aren't very many um, vloggers or filmmakers filming in English uh, about Poland and there's, there's almost none doing it in Polish. Uh, from a foreign perspective, but I I felt like I had an important message that I, that I wanted to say. Um, that has evolved, as I say, because I think what I started to do was what a lot of people do in business and in content creation is I was stuck for an idea with this heavy sense that you have to produce as much content as possible, as regularly as possible. And I started to sort of, well, I wouldn't say copy, but, you know, basically try and evolve on what other people had done. 
And I was doing all sorts of crap, frankly, like stuff like what is the difference between English and Polish animal noises, which, you, you know, is fun, but isn't particularly uh, meaningful. Um, wh- where am I going to with this? Well, two years ago, I was walking home from a football match and I had my head smashed in. I got beaten up by a gang of, uh, probably by a gang of Polish football hooligans. I'm not entirely sure because I lost consciousness. Um, and I had a hematoma in my head. Uh, I woke up in hospital the next day, having been unconscious. Uh, in the neurosurgical wards of a uh, Polish hospital. I spent 20 days there, and eventually they, they removed this large hematoma from between my brain and my skull. Now, why I mention this story is because as I was lying in the hospital, um, I had a very keen sense of the passing of time and the importance of meaning and the importance of relationships uh, and the importance of contribution. So I kind of fast-tracked my move from uh, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs from, from significance to contribution. And I left that hospital very much a changed person. And towards the end of last year, having had tens of millions of views, I started to ask myself a question, which is, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, like, sure, it's great to have people watch your content and you feel like, you know, it's, it's wonderful when someone sees you in the street and they go, hey, you made me laugh the other day or or even better, you know, somebody says, oh, wow, I watched your film and it made me cry. I did a film about a Polish um, soldier called Witold Pilecki that had 10 million views on Facebook. And I had people from all around the world write to me and say, you know, variations of the fact, I don't know anything about Poland, don't even know where it is on the map, but I really want to find out more about the country. That is an amazing feeling, you know, and it never ceases to be wonderful. Although there is a moment where you have so much uh, positive appreciation that it starts to become quite devalued, especially online. Um, I've been through the whole wild gamut of experience of online video creation from being the um, scrabbler trying to get, you know, 100 views, 1000 views felt amazing to um, to having massive success with a million, 5.3 million views, 2 million views, 10 million views to having complete and utter chaos. uh, Like, for example, my last film quite recently about a Polish priest, an incredible story. I'll just tell it briefly because I, I think it is, it answers your question. Um, there's a priest who was um, taken to Auschwitz uh, in 1941, I believe, and um, he was callously treated by the guards, especially they actually used to torture priests and religious figures uh, more than anyone else, actually. And he, he knew his days were numbered. He was... Um, giving out his rations and his drinks, even though they were already starvation level. So this guy wasn't going to last long. One day, a prisoner from his barracks escaped, or was thought to have escaped. And they lined up these prisoners uh, from the barracks, and they announced that 10 of them would be selected at random to be starved to death as a punishment for this one man escaping. And that was the practice at the time at Auschwitz. Um, The priest wasn't one of the men selected, but when one of the men selected started crying out for his wife and his children, you know, oh, what a horrible way to go to be starved to death. Um, the priest stepped forward and went up to the commandant and asked to give his life in return for um, that of the man's. And amazingly, uh, the commandant agreed. So these 10 men were led off, the priest amongst them, the man saved. Um, and these 10 men were then starved to death in a, in a death cell uh, in Block 11 of Auschwitz. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this story is because it, it reflects where I am today. Every single one of the pieces of film that I make has to have um, some kind of impact and value. It has to have some sort of meaning. It's not enough for me now to get views. It has to help people to, to understand the world we live in and be part of a wider dialogue. 
So I feel like um, my answer to your question would have been very different last year. It would have probably been about getting views to monetize. Um, I believe I have uh, a gift of storytelling. And even if I didn't make a single penny out of it, I'd still be doing it because it is truly my passion. Great. Well, I wasn't expecting that. And that's really, really interesting. And um, I'm just making a mental note to um, consult with my TEDx Cashmere speaker team about whether that might not be an interesting enough idea to have on the TEDx Cashmere stage. Have you ever have you ever been involved in a TED or TEDx? Do you know anything about that? Dude, I loved Charles Crawford's speech at, at your TED thing, and I dreamt about uh, speaking to you for ages. <laughs> You're kind of like a hero of mine. So the chance to be on this podcast is an amazing experience. Would I go up onto a TEDx stage and smash the living hell out of it? You bet. Yeah, I've just been waiting for the moment. Okay, well, I mean, I I have a, a, a team in process. There's Christian and Kinga, and you know we're already uh, closing for our, our event this year is on the ninth of June, the ninth of June. So that, but I, that's something that I'll have to follow up. I am going to be in Warsaw next Wednesday for the. I'm, I'm doing a pre-event for TEDx Warsaw because I've got a whole thing about pre-events which I can discuss another time. I might do a special broadcast about my... I'm also doing something in, a, in Manhattan in a co-working space on the 8th, and, sorry, the 9th and 10th of April in New York next month, another pre-event before a big TED event, in, um, which is quite exciting because it's the first time I've ever organised anything on Broadway. It's not a Broadway theatre, but it is on Broadway. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I wonder, would you be available next Wednesday evening late? I know you've got young kids, are you, or during the day? I would, or, yeah. yeah. During the day? By, by all okay. okay, well, some, I, I'm, I think it's, it's time to... It's time to wrap this. I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with this. There are a few names you gave where I'll ask you to send links because I've been making a few notes, but in order to, I, I always feel it does add to the value of something if there are easy to follow links uh, for people on it. Um, I'm really, uh, really glad that we got onto this sense of meaning because quite often you can get into a particular path of life where you're doing what you do by, by habit and it may make sense, but it's really good sometimes to step back, have a, whether it's a shock like an accident or being beaten up or a war or an illness, just like, is this really what I want to do? And if I am doing it, um, is that how I, how I should be doing it? And I think even if people only take that away from this interview um, conversation, that's valuable. Of course, I, I, hope that the, I hope that the underlying get to grips with online marketing message, and if you, if, if you heard it from us for the first time, better late than never. <laughs> um, um, so just before we wrap, is there, is there, is there anything, and, and thank you for the compliment, by the way, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close, or, or is that it? Well, dear listener, um, you have a choice today. You can choose to sit and watch Netflix, or you can choose to read a book, or you can choose to go and help a local neighbour. Or you can choose to go and spend some money uh, on a charity that helps uh, children with, with mental health issues. Whatever your choice today is, I hope it's a good one. And I hope it helps other people because there will be a day, a reckoning. Uh, perhaps you, you will make it of yourself uh, as your life comes to an end where you'll think, why am I here and what have I done? You know, if I had to look at the grand account. And I hope as we all slip off our, our, our mortal coil, we can all rest easy in the knowledge that we, we just did something to help other people. That's what I hope. Uh, and that's how I try to live every day, although often <laughs> I frankly don't. So I'm just trying to make money to get by. But, um, you know, that is, I think, the, the essential question. How, how much have we helped other people? That's, that's the only thing that really matters. Life, friends, love, relationship. That's what really counts. 
I'm not going to try and top that ending. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Paddy Nate. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals, it's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible, because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.